0: My name's Nick. If I have not met you, uh, I am the lead pastor here. I'm going to get us into God's Word. If you uh, have a Bible, you can open it to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 4 through 16 this morning, but I'm going to back up and read from verse 1. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Um, These handsome gentlemen will get one to you. If you don't own one, it's our gift to you. Please keep it. If you know someone that you want to give it away to... um, we exist to to uh, give away the the good news of the gospel. So please give away the, uh, the Bible to anyone you know. But let's open up to um, Luke chapter 10. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, but I'm going to read those again and carry on down to verse 16. This is one of those scenarios um, where... <laughs> Quite honestly, uh, I have even talking with some of the guys in the back there. Uh, there are times where you come into the scriptures and the things I see in them uh, convict me significantly. I've got to talk about things that I don't live as well as I would like. Or I have to talk about realities that sometimes aren't as fun or happy as I wish they could be. But this is one of the benefits um, brothers and sisters, to teaching the Bible verse by verse. Um, you come across topics that you might otherwise bob and weave and kind of get out of. And instead we recognize, gosh, it's not Nick who needs to lead the church by my own intuitions and wisdom, but it's God who leads the church by his word. And sometimes that's going to put me under the bus as well. <laughs> Let's read this and uh, I'll pray. We'll dive in. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven, you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. No one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Let's pray. God, we remember that you are in heaven and we are on the earth therefore we want to let our words be few it may be ironic to bring that to mind even Before I preach, but God, I pray that today it would be your words and not mine. God, we remember that around the throne in heaven, even now, the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, cry out, Holy, holy, holy. That you are set apart, that you are altogether other. That we have no business, sinners as we are, interfacing with you, and yet you're not only holy, you are gracious and kind and loving and merciful, and you're here. And you're calling us to yourself, but you're not only calling us to yourself, you're calling us to go to others and bring the good news. Before the last day. But I pray that you would help me. Not just teach this text. But live this text. I pray that you would help. All of us here. To see you meet with you. Find your grace. Find our reason for living. And go. In your name. It's in your name that I ask these things. Amen. Um just quick brief momentary introduction um, Jesus is sending out his 72 disciples here right and in that we've kind of seen that he is also by implication sending us out um, certainly this mission of the 72 is historically unique in some ways I'm not going to say that Uh, Point for point is how we're supposed to go out on mission necessarily. But nonetheless, there is something paradigmatic here for us. There is um, something of our own mission imperative in these disciples here. And that's really what uh, I am trying to bring out. I don't want us, and you should have caught this by now, I don't want us to think that, well, the, the mission was for them. They were sent out, but not us. No, uh, like we've been saying, we'll continue saying, every saint is sent. If you are in Christ, you are brought uh, uh, into his mission and sent out in his name. Uh, I'm going to bring out three things for us to consider this morning. They're there on your handout. Three simple words, really. The first is urgency. Uh comes there from verse 4. The second thing, um, probably taking the most of our time, will be intensity. That's going to be verses 5 to 15. And then finally, we'll just kind of close with a few thoughts on agency, which is uh, verse 16 there at the end. So we're just going to dive in. I hope you're ready. Uh, urgency there in verse 4. Uh, Before I actually get to verse 4, I I actually want to kind of dip back in, if you'll let me, uh, dip back into the opening verses that we did, if you were with us, look at uh, last week. Um, I think the urgency of our mission, the idea that there's kind of a a deadline, there's a reason for moving quickly here, uh, was in fact hinted at back in verse 2. And I want you to, to look at that now. I recognize that in the English, this is going to be relatively indiscernible. In the Greek, it's actually pretty clear. Uh, I'll explain it to you. But when you look back at verse 2, you see what Jesus is encouraging his disciples to pray. And uh, he says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, it's at that point uh, uh, where the English is translated send out. That's where uh, in the Greek beneath it, the New Testament is written in Greek. Um, you Did something change? Yeah, something changed there. All of a sudden I'm like, why do I feel like I'm preaching to myself here? Are we all right? Okay. Um, anyways, uh, so... The word chosen there is not the normal word for send out. The word that actually shows up later in verses 3 and 16 in the Greek, it's apostello. That's the normal word for send them out. It's where we get our word apostle from. Instead, the word chosen uh, and the word that's translated send out here in verse 2 is actually a word far stronger It's a word that essentially means thrust out or driven out or cast out or thrown out. In other words, there's this sort of urgency to the word. We're called by Jesus to ask the Lord of the harvest to, in essence, kick people out into the harvest because the time is short, it would seem. It's a word that vividly portrays for us the urgency of the situation at hand. Now, I think when we locate uh, this whole scene within the image that Jesus gives us here, this image of harvest time, the urgency starts to make even more sense, right? Um When you think of harvest time, you think of a limited window, do you not? Or you don't want things to die on the vine or to die in the field. And you have a limited window when the time is right. You better get up off the couch and get into the field. Because it's not going to last forever. You can't lounge around and get to it when you feel a little better. Or after after you've had your two cups of coffee or whatever it is. It's time now. And the deadline is approaching where the harvest will no longer be um, accessible or of any value. This is why um, when the harvest time would come around Israel and things, uh, what I read at least is Jewish families would actually, I mean, every member of the family would be in essence thrust out into the field to get all that you could in the time that you had. Now, um, I have never been a part of harvesting anything apart from my little garden in my yard, which I think I've probably said. Last year, the rats got the, the rats harvested everything first, so uh, we didn't even attempt it this year. I'm like, I got to build a cage to keep those rats out. But I haven't harvested uh, anything like I imagine the, the the Jews or the people around Jesus's day did. But I can tell you this. Uh, perhaps on analogy, uh, I think I might feel somewhat similarly uh, in the Bay Area uh, around springtime. And here's what I mean. I've even told some of you this. Um, I know that some of us get uh, what you might call spring-induced allergies, right? Um, anybody? I mean, I, I I get these. I could barely see yesterday through the haze in my eyes. Um but I get something else that I would call spring-induced anxiety. Now, here's what I mean by this. I absolutely love springtime in California. I, I, I wait all year. For the hills to resurrect with life, for the the, the, the window when the flowers are going to come out, I wait all year for it. And when it's finally here, it's like this anxiety in me, this sense of urgency that I have. To, we got to get out to the hills. Why? Because I know there's a limited window. And who, I mean, what? It's maybe a couple weeks. Maybe if if we continue to get some rain, a couple months. But then the hills turn brown again, or if. If the glass is half full, they turn gold, right? But nonetheless, the flowers are gone. And so how do I handle that situation? Well, you could just ask my wife. I essentially thrust or drive my family out to the hills. In fact, if I could share with you, uh, last Monday, my day off, uh, I took Levi and Bella with me. Uh, to a place that I was told there were a lot of wildflowers going off. And I pack them into my two-kid, two, per, two kid, big, wide, old stroller. And I get on this narrow, rocky, steep path. And I'm trying to push these kids up this thing. And everybody I pass is looking at me like, this is the most ridiculous father I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> And I'm thinking the same thing, actually, as they almost go off the side. And I'm sitting here pushing this thing. What am I doing out here? But then you see it. I mean, then you see the flowers and you start to, I don't know if you're supposed to pick them or not, but you start to have a little bouquet. You're like, this is incredible to get my family. Did I just incriminate myself? (laughs) I don't pick the poppy. Okay. I know that's a sacred one. All right. It's just beautiful. It's amazing. So so even if it doesn't make sense, even if it's kind of ridiculous, I'm trying to drive my family out into the hills because I want to be there. I want to capture it in the limited window that I have. Now, the question that this text then puts before me and us is this. So that sense of urgency, Nick, that you have, springtime Bay Area, is that how you feel about getting the good news out? Is that how you feel about the mission of God? About about laboring in the harvest, the, the, the harvest that, that matters for eternity? Is there that sense of urgency? We've got to get out, kids. We've got to go. We've got to let people know. Church, we've got to go. There's a limited window, and then the end is here. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, the idea of harvest often carries with it um, the overtones of of coming judgment. I don't have time to go into all that, but the same is obviously true for our text here. If you were reading carefully, especially there in verses 12 through 15, you see it, which we'll look at that later. But the, the whole context is this judgment that's coming, this last day, that day, the day when Jesus is going to return. And this kind of sets up, therefore, the urgency that we feel, or ought to feel, in this time of harvest. If people need to hear the good news and they need to hear it now, before it's too late, the window is closing, what we don't often realize is that the arrival of Christ, according to New Testament theology, not something you saw on um, you know, the end Times in some like popular movie or book or whatever. But according to New Testament theology, when Jesus shows up, when he arrives, first time, he actually initiates the beginning of the end. From that point, the, 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 the writers of the New Testament will talk about us as living in the last days. We are in the end times. The end times aren't somewhere out there. They are where we are right now. This is why Paul would say to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 29, the appointed time has grown very short. And he say, I thought 2,000 years went but Well, they did. Long to us, maybe. But what we know is that the time is short. And God is saying, man, what are we going to do with the time that we have? There's an urgent need in the harvest field. Now, it's this sort of thing, I think, that stands behind the urgency we sense in verse 4. You catch that? Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. The idea is basically this mission is going to call for our lives. This mission takes priority and precedence over everything. So therefore, enough with the planning, enough with the preparation, just go. And as you go, don't stop. That's kind of the meaning of don't greet anyone on the road. It's kind of a weird phrase, right? The introverts among us love it. Finally, Jesus gives me some uh, permission To just walk on by. Don't got to talk. Don't got to say hi. Don't got to engage in that small talk I feel awkward about. Others of us hear him say, greet no one on the road. And we think that sounds rude. You ever been there where you're the guy actually trying to say hi to the other person? And you know that they they know you're there, but they don't make eye contact with you or whatever. They just got their phone. and Just walk on by, right? Well, that was rude. Let me tell you something. If we think that that idea, that concept sounds rude, even more so for the Jew, even more so for the people in Israel's day around the East where, where the greetings and things would be elaborate, involving hugs and kisses and sharing of stories and all these things. And they would have found this idea here of greeting no one on the road as, as, as outright offensive. But the idea... Therefore, is this, the mission takes priority over social norms and niceties. It takes priority over everything. It's not unlike what we saw a few weeks ago. I mean, Jesus stays on message. He doesn't deviate. So I can show you this from all over the place, but we just came from him uh, really expressing these very same things uh, to a, a few uh, aspiring would-be disciples, right? You remember this there at the end of Luke 9. Uh, he tells one, hey, listen, I'm sorry, you can't turn back and bury your dad. He tells another, I'm sorry, you can't turn back and say goodbye and throw a little party to all your family back home. you got to make the call now. Are you with us or are you not? The mission, the kingdom, it's advancing. Are you, are you, are you on this train or not? So we're going to have to let some things go. So at least some of the questions that confront us now uh, as we look at Verse 4, things like this. Are we willing to put the good news before a good reputation? That's the one that got me. (laughs) He's saying, listen, I know that they're going to think you're rude for just going on by. But we're living for another kingdom. We're living for another world. And if people want to badmouth you because you're living for me, well, are you all right with that? Is the good news more important than a good reputation? Or to put it another way, do we love what people think of us more than we love the people themselves? Did you hear that? I was finishing up the, the book by Jeff Vanderstelt that I had mentioned back at the beginning of Luke 9 when we were dealing with it, Gospel Fluency. I was finishing that up this last week and that's one of the reasons he was saying, why, why don't we share? Why don't we go out? What does it do? It's one of the things they say, well, we love what people think of us more than we love the people themselves. In other words, if I really loved you, if I really loved the people in my neighborhood or the people in this city, would I hesitate to share or to ask them what they think of Jesus? Would I worry about getting the right method in order first or the right time? Would I... Would it not be obvious that my heart is bleeding for them and I love them? Like, just Have you heard? What do you think? Or is it, gosh, well then I'll be that religious freak that they'll mark in their mind as stay away from him. And then I'll, I've broken all the social norms of our day. You don't just come up and say that sort of thing to a person, especially not when they're on their iPhone, but they're never off their iPhone. So when do you ever get to talk to anybody? But you know what I'm saying, right? God help me. God help us to love people enough to talk about these things while there's still time. Now, if that wasn't intense enough, now we move to intensity, okay? Intensity, verses 5 through 15. Verses 5 through 15. For this point, again, I actually want to refer back to the opening verses from last week uh, one more time. Particularly, I want to draw your attention to verse 1 and the fact that Jesus is sending these disciples out, if you noticed, two by two. Two by two. Now, no problem if we in our missions want to say, hey, let's follow the model in Scripture and send everyone out two by two. Fine, that's, that's great. But Jesus is doing more Uh, than kind of some sort of pragmatic stuff here. There's actually a theological concern behind this, I think, and that's what I just wanted us to see. It's going to set us up to understand verses 5 through 15 a little more, I think. Um, To help you get this, I just want to read to you uh, the words of one commentator here. Sending the disciples in pairs probably reflects the necessity of two witnesses in capital offenses in Israel. And he quotes Deuteronomy 17.6, Deuteronomy 19.15. In other words, if someone was going to be put on the stand for a capital offense, a life and death, hey, are we going to convict or not a fence? Two witnesses, two testimonies, two testifiers were required. Not just my testimony versus yours, but an, but an, but two Uh, testimonies the requirement he goes on to write of two witnesses to take or preserve a human life may carry the added significance that the mission of the 72 here is a matter of life and death importance this life and death stuff here so Jesus sends them out two by two not just so they can have a buddy you know, on those lonely nights or so that they can have some extra accountability. All that stuff is great. He actually perhaps sends them out in this way to imply that the testimony they are bringing to these towns is a matter of life and death for them. If they accept this message, life. If they reject this message, death. Of course, they're going around Israel and they would be aware of this sort of precedent. So I'm not really going to deal, if you're worried, I'm not really going to deal with the, you know, every detail in these 10 verses, 5 through 15. Um, But I do think that this idea of life and death actually divides it up quite nicely for us. Uh, So I'm just going to bring out uh, a couple things for you here. On the side of life, uh, Jesus speaks in particular of bringing peace. So, I'm sending you out. It's a life and death thing. On the side of life, Jesus talks about how his disciples and you and I are going to bring peace. Verse uh, 5 and the first part of 6. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. So why has Jesus come? What is Jesus doing on the earth? I think we can sum it up in this word he uses here. Peace. I've shared this with you before, but for the Jew and especially in light of the scriptures, the concept that they would have of peace is so much more comprehensive than what we have today. It's not just this idea of peace of mind. It's not just this idea of peace in your circumstances like you're kicking back on a beach somewhere. It's not just this idea of peace even between people and your relationships or between nations or whatever. It's, it's more comprehensive than that. The idea, shalom, if you're familiar with it, is this idea of peace in every dimension. And it it is in every dimension in particular because you have peace with god if you have peace with the god over every dimension of life then you have peace that starts to permeate every dimension of life we lost this peace when we broke with god and jesus has come to restore who in this room wants peace who in this room wants peace in every dimension is that not the longing of our hearts, especially in a world plagued by wars and rumors of wars? The idea is that everything that the human heart has longed for, was created for, we lost when we broke peace with God and our sin. Jesus has come to restore that. Jesus has come to uh, bring that back. This is why a few chapters later, Maybe we'll get there uh, next decade sometime. Uh, chapter 19 of Luke, verse 42, he's, he's, he's reached Jerusalem. And he's standing over the city. He's about to go in, start the last week of his life. And he says this, he's just weeping. Would that you, even you, had known on this day, Israel, Jerusalem, the things that make for your peace. In other words, what is Jesus doing as he's hanging on the cross, gasping for air? What is he doing there? He is making yours and my peace in those moments. He is working to restore what we in our arrogance and our rebellion and our sin broke, shattered. And left on the floor. He's picking it back up, putting it back together, making our peace. That's what he's doing, and nobody in Jerusalem saw it. But I hope we do. Like Paul would say, Romans 5:1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have peace with God through Jesus, you can be sure that peace is going to start to permeate every other dimension until it swallows the earth in the new heavens and earth. This is the news that Jesus' disciples, we are called, are commissioned, are sent out to announce. It's the best news the world has ever known. But we know not everybody finds it so good. Not everybody wants to hear they broke with God or they can't find peace on their own. They still live in the Tower of Babel lie that we can build ourselves up, the tower up to heaven. We can make a name for ourselves. We can do this on our own. I don't need Jesus, some some Jewish peasant who died back at the turn of the millennia or whatever, to help me with this. I don't need a crutch. I can find it on my. Well, how is that going for you? If you can find peace, if you can do this, why do you lie awake at night, smothered by your own anxieties? Why do you leave in your wake a a, 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 just a, a mass of dead bodies from relationships that you have destroyed, bridges that you have burned? How's that going for you? Until we are restored with Him, we will not have peace really, essentially, fundamentally, in any dimension. But nonetheless, people don't want to hear it. They don't want to receive it. They find this message, this news, not good, but distasteful, even offensive. And so they reject it. And now we come to the side of death, right? If on the side of life there was peace, now we see that on the side of death there is judgment. So you see that there in verses 10 and the first part of 11 now. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. It's a symbolic gesture signaling to the city that its residents are profane, unholy, outside the realm of God's people and kingdom, and that judgment is coming unless they repent, receive his Christ in faith. I mean, it's just, it's just, these guys are so bold. And here's what I realize it's like I often want to. I often want to end my conversations like with people if I even am bold enough to have them. You know, it's like, oh well, ugh. you know. They always say, "Well, that's true for you. That's great. It works for you." And, yeah, okay. These guys don't walk out saying, "Oh, I guess it's true for me," and I don't want to step on your toe. They say, "Listen, judgment's coming." I mean, they don't bat an eye. Now I know that they're probably speaking largely to Israel, and God's been working on Israel for for. <laughs> Hundreds, hundreds, thousands of years. So perhaps it's a little different than our neighbor, right? But nonetheless, do we just have it settled in our bones? This is for real? Or do we kind of pander and play that game? You know, oh, well, I don't want to step on your toes. So yeah, that there's some good, you know, yeah, I see that. That's all right. These guys are wiping dust off their feet. say, man, judgment's coming. This is a life and death thing, in other words. Now, I'm going to make quickly two observations before I um, uh, move forward uh, to actually verses 12 through 15 in this. Um, observation number one, I think these will help us as we approach our own mission. They've certainly helped me. Um, observation number one, the kingdom of God has come near in either case, whether life or death. Whether they accept or they reject, I wonder if you noticed the kingdom of God has come near in either case. I thought that was profound. Uh, in, in, in verse nine, when they accept, when there's healing, when there's power, when there's salvation, when the message of peace is received by a son of peace and the town is coming to know Jesus, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Jesus says, tell them that because it has. But, Verse 11, second part, when they reject you, when they reject you and they want nothing to do with your message and they kick you out of their house, they don't put meals in front of you. They don't like you. And you go out into the streets of that town and you say, man, that's it. Judgment is waiting. But Jesus says this. Make sure you tell them this. Nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. It's the same kingdom of God that has come near regardless of response. The only difference is the manner in which it's come, and that is decided by the response. For some who accept it, the kingdom comes near in peace. It comes near with a peace that surpasses understanding as they're brought back in relation with God. But for others, as the kingdom comes near, it comes near not in peace, but in judgment. As they reject it. Listen to me. Here's the thing that that struck me. We are prone to think... Uh, That the kingdom has come near when the miracle happens, when the good stuff happens. When, when, whoa, look at the people. They're turning to Jesus. They're converting in number, in, in, in droves. Wow, did you see that guy was healed? Did you see all the stuff that's going on? The kingdom is near. How amazing. Hallelujah. But then when we bring the message and it's rejected and we are shamed or we are kicked out, God is absent. He's left me. He's not vindicating His name. It's just me out here. God's kind of on His heels and He doesn't know how to respond to their objections and the kingdom is in retreat and that's never what you see. Instead, you just say, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. Just not for salvation today, but for judgment. God doesn't lose in this exchange ever and His people will not be shamed in the end. That crazy? That's amazing. Now, if only I could preach like this in the streets. What a hypocrite. I just feel it. Just feel it. Man. It's acceptable in here, kind of. Some of you guys know it's not acceptable. I'm out of here. (laughs) Observation number two. So observation number one, the kingdom of God has come near in either case. Observation number two, the results are not our responsibility in any case. The results are not our responsibility in any case. Isn't that beautiful? One thing that struck me is that Jesus basically says, listen, you're going to win some and lose some. He says it up front. He doesn't say, now you shoot a perfect score out there, son, you get it right. I don't want to hear about you fumbling the paths. I don't want to hear about... He says, listen, you bring that same message, you're going to win some, you're going to lose some. It's not up to you. That's That's why we started this whole thing by praying to the Lord of the harvest, to send you out into His harvest. Not up to you. Your responsibility is not in the results. Your responsibility is to bring the seed, to bring the message, to scatter, to trust Him enough to share, to go. Let let the other stuff be mine. Conversion, all that, that ain't up to you. They're probably not going to like you, a lot of them. You find many children of wrath before you find a son of peace. Probably. Nonetheless, we pray, we go, and we leave it to him. There's a freedom in that. There's a freedom in that. Now, uh, why do I stamp... um, this whole section of our text with the word intensity. Uh, Believe it or not, I haven't even actually gotten to why yet. Uh, Truly, I'm getting this from verses 12 through 15. Uh, I want to quickly draw your attention to that now. Um, The basic sense of those verses there is that there have been cities of old, particularly from the Old Testament and things, that have received some revelation from God, received some visitation from His messengers or whatever, and they have rejected it. And in their rejection of Him, they have faced His judgment. The epitome, the chief example of this would be Sodom, right? Even if you don't have a background in the Bible, you've probably heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's that notorious what was going on there and then God's destruction of that city. Now, Jesus says something shocking then in verse 12, something that would have just shook these disciples to the core. He says, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for that town. And they go, for Sodom? When I read that story, I heard what happened to that city. You're telling me that this town is going to face worse? That the heat, as it were, has been turned up in some sense no. now? The idea here is that. In the last day judgment, even the wicked, deplorable city of Sodom will fare better than some of these towns that Jesus and his disciples have visited. That's the crazy thing. With Jesus comes greater revelation of who God is and what his kingdom is like. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility or accountability. Remember that? To him who has been given much, much will be required. Greater revelation, greater responsibility. Therefore, rejection of that, greater judgment. Greater judgment. That's the logic. Um, That's why I'm saying things are getting even more intense. There's this intensification with the arrival of Christ. Now, let me elaborate on this uh, for a moment. Because I think there is this mistaken notion. I've held it. Perhaps you hold it even now. Uh, I think there's this mistaken notion when you try to understand how the Old and the New Testaments of our Bibles relate. Um, A lot of us have this idea that the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. Okay, He's kind of like the angry one that you don't really want to... Uh, 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 deal with. He's he's like destroying cities. He, he's murdering Canaanites. He's listing out rule after rule after rule, like you know maybe your mom did when you were four. You're gonna clean house. You're gonna do this. I don't. This is no fun. And then if you fail, he's stoning you, and it's it's severe. He's a god of wrath. And then thank God for the New Testament because Jesus arrives and everything changes. Now he's a god of grace. Now, you know, Jesus is is playing with children and he's and he's petting sheep and he's 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 telling stories and he's eating dinner with sinners and he's talking to Samaritans and Gentiles. And it's God's love has come into the picture. Finally. Now, I understand why we would think this. and I don't have time to go into all the reasons why here by any stretch. But that analysis cannot hold up to the biblical evidence. Instead, when we look a bit closer, what we find is that the wrath and grace of God run a parallel course together throughout the entire Bible. And with the arrival of Jesus in the New Testament, it's not as if God's wrath has been turned down and His grace has been turned up. Rather, it's that both God's wrath and grace have been turned up. That Jesus ushers in, as it were, the last installment in God's redemptive plan. And the revelation that comes to us is greater. Therefore, both sides, the peace we can know and the judgment we will face, ratchet it up. That's what this text is getting at. In essence, this is what a text like Hebrews 10, I can read it to you here. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26, is saying. It's why you get these sort of things. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Interesting. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Verse 31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Did you hear it? I wonder. The idea of intensification there is found in those words at the beginning of verse 29. How much worse punishment. He's saying, yes, grace is turned up, but judgment is as well. Wrath is as well. Moses, you spurn him and his covenant and his law. That's the big deal. How much worse if you spurn Jesus, his blood. Cross, the new covenant. Jesus is the highest point of God's revelation, therefore, rejecting him is the gravest of sin. You could put it like this uh, in Christ, both the peace and the judgment um, have been intensified. Uh, on the one side of it, Jesus. Jesus throws himself into the hands of the living God for us, does he not? How fearful a thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's where Jesus goes. For you and for me. Why? So that we might have a peace infinitely more intense than Moses or David or anyone under the Old Testament could ever provide. So that we could know peace with God at a level unexperienced before. But for those who reject judgment in a way more intense than even under the Old Testament. All the stuff typify you thought the Canaanite conquests were bad? Turn to the end of Revelation when Jesus returns. He is holy, that's why I began the prayer that I did with the prayer that I did. The only way this makes sense is that He is holy. We don't belong. And he's made a way, and if we would still thumb our nose at that, if we don't are uninterested in the Son who has fallen into the hands of the living God for us, then we are set to fall there ourselves. And it's a judgment more intense, more severe than anything the Canaanites experienced, or Sodom experienced, or Tyre or Sidon. Third and finally, verse sixteen there, and this is where we will close, um, is just this idea of agency. This idea of agency. In this Perhaps the most profound verse I titled the sermon the way I did because this verse captivated me. I think it's amazing. It's what we are called to be. We are called in essence to be his agents, his ambassadors, his representatives. Did you see it there in verse 16? The one who hears you, he says, hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. But the basic idea is we are his agents. We are his ambassadors. That I am putting him on display. I am bringing the kingdom of God near. When I come near, that people can read from the lines of my life what God is like, what Jesus is like, what he feels, what he would say, what he would do so that when they hear me talk, they hear Him. And that is at once an awe-inspiring privilege and just something that so convicted me to the core. I just thought, wow, in my relationships and in my marriage and in my parenting, is what they get, what they hear from me, Him? And when I'm talking to my neighbors or when I'm, you know, uh, talking to the person at Starbucks or whatever, is what they hear? When they hear me, do they hear him or do they just hear me? So I don't know if you kind of like me come away from some of this going, gosh, who is sufficient, who is worthy for this stuff? I am a fumbling, bumbling ambassador. Sometimes I speak for him. Other times I speak for me. Sometimes when I come, his kingdom comes near. Other times when I come near, my kingdom comes near. And don't you get on my bad side. And you feel like, oh, I can't do this. Well, I want to leave you with one final observation. It's something we cannot miss. I wonder if you notice it there in verse 16 at the end. Jesus locates his sending of us within the larger context of the Father's sending of him. He locates our mission within the larger context of his own mission he says the one who hears you hears me the one who rejects you rejects me and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me in other words am i sending you yes but before i ever send you out the father has sent me and what i'm drawing from this just to encourage you as we close is that listen Your mission, your ability, all this stuff is not the fundamental thing. It's this mission that the son has been sent on. And what is that mission? Not just to the, not just to these other towns, but actually to these disciples as well. To you and I. To die, not just for them, but for us. For our sins for my failures as an ambassador, to release me slowly but surely from the love of stuff and the fear of man or whatever else plagues my heart, to slowly help me grow and change, to stand by me when I falter and I deny him, to come back to me when I am like Peter and say, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Get back in the game. To, to, to keep ministering the gospel to me until it gets deep in my bones. So the mission, my mission, is secondary and it flows from His. His sending out of me is dependent on the Father's sending of Him. And He sent His Son to die for me, to rise. And to bring that grace again and again to a sinner who so desperately needs it. So that maybe, remember the woman at the well? She drinks in deep of this grace she doesn't deserve. And what does she do? She just makes a beeline for the town to tell them about the one she found. Loosen our lips as we come to know his love, as we hear him speak grace over us, speak grace over us, speak grace over us. We grow more fluent in that as well and bring that sort of language to others. And maybe then they do hear hear him when they hear me. And even if I call for repentance, even if I talk about impending judgment, I talk about it with tears in my eyes like Jesus over Jerusalem. Not from my high tower. They hear him when they hear me. That's what Jesus is doing with us. Our mission is effective and is enabled only because he has first been on mission to us. And he still is here in this room today. Let's go to him. God, we thank you for the fact that you love us. The fact that you have called us to live for ultimate things. So many give their lives for trivial things that on their deathbed they will have to wonder, was it worth it? What did I really do? God, if we would live for the harvest, if we would live for these things, love for God and love for others, spreading the good news, we will pass through the thin veil of death with confidence. We made the most of the short time. God, I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would comfort those that feel, and far from being an ambassador, I'm just floundering, even even just trying to obey little things. God, I pray that your grace would be present. You are with us all. You are near. We turn from our sin again. We trust your provision and grace. And we rejoice at the peace that is ours, though we undeserve it, or don't deserve it. We love you. We sing to you now. It's in your name we pray. Amen.